God's grace and peace to all of you dear people. Welcome to this part of the service. As we look into the Word of God in a collective way this morning, and to those of you who are visiting, I welcome you as well. It's good to have you here, part of us this morning. Throughout the Bible, over and over again, uh, we come face to face with the call of the gospel. You know, God's word is alive, it's powerful, and it pierces our hearts, sometimes challenging us, sometimes convicting us, uh, sometimes comforting us, but always calling us, always calling us. When we read the scripture, when we come face to face with the gospel, it never leaves us feeling comfortable with where we're at. But there's always this holy tension pulling us, wanting to take us to the next level in our walk with the Lord. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is is constantly calling sinners to salvation and calling saints to a deeper and more intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. And so this morning... As we stand just inside the door of 2024, there's some things that we are uncertain about as we look into this new year. There's a lot of things that we don't know, and we may wonder what God has in store. But dear people, there is one thing that is certain, and that is that God wants us to come closer to Him so that we can go deeper with Him. He is calling us uh, to a deeper place in our walk with Him. And so as we embark on a new calendar year, God is speaking to us. He's speaking to us as individuals. He's speaking to us as a congregation, as a conference. And He's calling us to three areas of growth. We'd like to look at these areas this morning, and that is fruitfulness, faith, and forgiveness. I invite you to Mark chapter 11 for a text this morning. God is calling us, I say, to fruitfulness, to faith, and to forgiveness. Mark chapter 11, and our text begins... In verse 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Now let's move to verse 20. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursedest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto him, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe those things which he hath saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses." I've titled this message, Nothing But Leaves. And the title is not meant to discourage you, okay? 
It's not meant to discourage you. Instead, it's meant to cause you to take personal inventory this morning in light of the truth of God's Word. I ask you, what do people find when they get to know you? What do people see when they push back the leaves of your life? Let me just give the context of the setting here. You see, the setting of this passage is important then to understanding the whole story. Now, this is just a few days before Jesus' trial and death on the cross. And He had just come through the streets of Jerusalem in what we refer to as the triumphal entry. But while all the crowds were cheering, Jesus was crying. Now, we don't see that here in Mark 11, but we do see it in Luke's account in chapter 19. Jesus wasn't just choked up. Jesus was sobbing. He was sobbing. Why was Jesus crying? You see, Jesus had grown up with the people. He had lived among them. He had ministered among the people now for three years. He had taught them the truths of God. And He had repeatedly told them who He was. He was God incarnate. He had repeatedly told them why He came. And then He had proved it with many mighty miracles. And Jesus had clearly told them His mission, His purpose for coming. He said, I am come to seek and to save that which was lost. But the response of the religious leaders and the response of the Jewish people in general was one of rebellion. It was one of rejection. The attitude was, we won't have this man to reign over us. That was the general response that he received. And now it was too late. And between sobs, if you read in Luke chapter 19, you find where Jesus told the people, He said, if you had known, even you, at least in this your day, the things which belong to your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. If you had only known. And then He goes on to predict in pinpoint detail the coming judgment and the complete destruction of Jerusalem. He said, because you knew not the time of thy visitation. Or you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And he said, it's too late. And so that brings us to our text here this morning. This is the setting behind our story. And let's notice, first of all, the call to more fruitfulness. The call to more fruitfulness. Before we look into this, I just want to make a couple side notes here. I found it fascinating as I studied this passage, the humanity of Jesus that comes out numerous times. So before He went through the streets of Jerusalem, it said that the Lord has need of a colt to ride on. Now, isn't that something? (laughs) The Lord has need of a colt to ride on. And then as we move through the story, we have Jesus crying. He's sobbing. And then we come into our text this morning, and He's hungry. And then we see that Jesus in this story has no special knowledge of the fig tree. He, He has to go up to it and examine it to see that there's no fruit there. It's interesting. We see His humanity on display throughout this passage. And it stands out to me maybe more particularly because we just came through the time of year and season where we think of His incarnation, of God coming to earth as a little baby. God becoming one of us. It's also interesting to note that this is one of only two miracles in which Jesus used His power 
to destroy something in nature. Children, do you know another miracle where Jesus used his power to destroy something? It was the pigs. <laughs> you remember all the pigs? Jesus took the demons out of the man and cast them into the pigs. And the pigs went zooming down over a cliff. Many, many pigs that were filled with the devil, I guess, and perished. Well, here's another situation where Jesus used his power to destroy something in nature. And so here in verse 12, we have Jesus and his disciples. They're coming uh, out of Jerusalem, moving on now. And it says, well, they were coming from Bethany. And it says that he was hungry. And notice that he sees this fig tree afar off. There was something that attracted his attention from afar off. What was it? It was the leaves. He saw the leaves. This is a fig tree that had leaves. Now, there's some things that I don't fully understand about this verse. It's one of those verses where you almost feel bad for the fig tree. <laughs> and when you get to the end of the verse, you read it and then you say, well, wait a minute, it wasn't time for the figs. This doesn't seem fair for him to curse it. And so there's a few things we don't completely understand I do understand that the time of figs was, usually it was time to harvest the figs around the Passover, and, and this was getting very close to the Passover, and so there was more than likely to be figs there. It maybe wasn't quite time to harvest them, but, so I don't know, it's hard to figure it all out. But I understand that at least those fig trees in that culture, if there was leaves, there should have been fruit. Okay? I understand that on those fig trees, the fruit developed first and then the leaves. So if you saw leaves, it was understood, it was a given that there should be fruit there. And from afar off, Jesus saw leaves. And so there's fruit, right? You see, from a distance, this tree had the appearance of life and health and fruitfulness. And so Jesus came to enjoy the fruit. That's what drew Jesus to that fig tree. But when Jesus got really close and he examined the tree, he realized that he had been deceived. Essentially, we have a picture here of false advertising. <laughs> there were leaves, but there were no figs. In fact, the leaves were saying, I have figs, but there were no figs. I quote, There were many trees with only leaves, and these were not cursed. There were many trees with neither leaves nor fruit, and these were not cursed. This tree was cursed because it professed to have fruit, but did not professed to have fruit, but did not. Now, I want you to notice what the disciples saw when they passed by there the next morning. So the next morning, Jesus and His disciples, they passed by this way again. And what did they see? Verse 20, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Is that significant? From the roots. I mean, they could have just simply saw the fig tree dried up. But Mark writes, they noticed it was dried up from the roots. You see, dear people, it is through the roots of a tree that nutrition is received, that life and health is then maintained, and that fruit is born. It comes through the root of the tree. In other words, the roots are the heart of the matter. Where there's no fruit then your mind tends to go to the health of the tree. And when you think of the health of the tree, then your mind goes to the nutrition or the diet. What is this tree feeding on? 
Now, people, I hope you understand this morning that we're really not talking about fig trees. Jesus wasn't talking so much about fig trees as he was about people. We're talking about people. Jesus was using this fig tree to illustrate the fruitlessness of Israel. Once again, Jesus had been among them for years. He had been teaching them, ministering to them, telling them who He was, proving Himself with miracles. He was sent from God. For three years He had been about His Father's business in this way, but yet they had failed to be fruitful for God. And He didn't take it lightly, because in this story, we then see a vivid picture of His judgment. He cursed the fig tree and said, No fruit on you forever. I want you to turn to John chapter 15. And let's notice another passage where Jesus speaks about fruitfulness. You know, God has called each one of us to be laborers together with Him. We are to be a part of His Father's business. We are to work together in the vineyard, as it were. And this scripture here says that the Father is the husbandman, and Jesus says, I'm the true vine. And let's see what is expected here. Verse uh, chapter 15, verse 1 of John. I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. I want you to notice that word more. It's going to come up several times here in a few verses. God is looking for more fruit from each one of us. (laughs) He's not okay. He's not satisfied with just a couple apples on our tree. Here's a plum and there's a plum. Okay, it has fruit. They're doing fine. No! God is looking for more fruit. He's looking for lives that are full of fruit. And so when I write fruitfulness in in my notes, I write it full with two L's because I'm thinking of, of lives that are full of fruit. That's what God is looking for. Verse 3, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. Notice that connection. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. There it is again. For without me, ye can do nothing. Once again, that speaks of the connection. Where are you getting your life? What is your nutrition? Where are your roots? Verse 6, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. That speaks of the, the judgment. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Now look at verse 16. Jesus says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, lasting fruit, that whatsoever... Ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. You see, God has chosen each of us to be a part of his Father's business. That is the fruit growing business. And God is looking for much fruit in our lives. Verse 8 says, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit so shall ye be my disciples. Do you understand that fruit bearing is a test of our discipleship? It's a test of our discipleship. 
You say you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You say you're a believer. Where is the fruit? I'm seeing leaves, but where is the fruit? God is looking for lives that are full of fruit. Lives that leave no question, but it's clearly visible and it's beautiful. Flowing from your life should be the fruit of the Spirit. Without doubt, they're a believer. Why? Because they are connected to the true vine, Jesus Christ. They are connected to the very source of life. And it's evident. Look at how they look. Look at how they relate. Their life is attractive because it's a mirror of Jesus Christ. I also think of the passage in Psalm 1. Psalm 1. And there again, we see a beautiful picture of someone who is attached securely to the vine. They are drawing their nutrition. They are drawing their life from what? The Word of God. What does the Bible say? It says that his delight, that blessed person, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. Okay, that is foundational to everything that comes after. Okay? Foundational to everything is his priorities in life. His delight is not in associating with ungodly people. No, it's not. But what he really loves to do day and night is feast on God's word. That's at the center, the core of who he is. And then he shall be like a tree. Planted where? By the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And then there is a contrast with the ungodly. But do you see that? Do you see this person who is deeply, deeply connected, intimately connected to the Word of God? It is such that it controls their lives day and night. It is, it is their, their perspective, their worldview. It calls the shots. And flowing out of that comes a life that is productive, that is fruitful, that is beautiful. Planted by the rivers of water. You know, I am very grateful for our Anabaptist uh, worldview, for our Anabaptist beliefs and perspectives. I am very grateful for the heritage that has been passed down to us. Absolutely, I am. We have much to be thankful for. And I believe it's a biblical way of life. But I wonder sometimes, dear people, if we find ourselves hiding behind the leaves of our conservative Mennonite culture. Do we sometimes find ourselves hiding behind the leaves of our conservative Mennonite culture. You know, it's pretty easy uh, to look okay from a distance. I mean, that fig tree looked pretty good from a distance of Jesus, too. It's pretty okay, it's pretty easy, I say, to look okay from a distance in our culture. And our culture is attractive to many. And people come and, and check us out because of our leaves, as it were. It draws them. But what do they find when they get close to us? When they get close to you, when they really get to know you, what do they see in your life? Do they find a life? Do they find a culture that is marked by the Holy Spirit? That is marked by the fruit of the Spirit? Is that evident? Or do they find nothing but leaves? You see, God is calling us as individuals, God is calling us as a congregation to more fruitfulness in this new year. Back in Mark 11, let's notice next the call to greater faith. The call to greater faith. And we find this in verses 22 through 24. You know, when I think of the call to greater faith, my mind goes to Luke chapter 17 where Jesus was talking to the disciples about forgiveness. 
And he told them that it is always our responsibility to forgive our brother. Even when they transgress against us, even when they sin against us, seven times in a day, it's always our responsibility to forgive. And the disciples were appalled by this. And what was their response? They said, Lord, increase our faith. (laughs) Lord, increase our faith. I also think of Mark chapter 9, the story there where uh, there was a young boy who was tormented by evil spirits. And the disciples had tried to cast them out, and they were not able to. And so the father brought the boy to Jesus, and he said, your disciples were not able to cast them out. And Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. Oh, faithless generation. And then Jesus says to the father, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And the cry of the Father touches my heart because I I feel it in my own life. And the Father cried out with tears and He said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Seems I'm awfully much there at that spot. Lord, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. And Jesus healed the young boy. You see, we need a greater faith in God as we move into this year. He would like to do some great things among us. I know He would. He would like to do some things that are seemingly impossible among us this year. I know He would. But where is our faith? Where is our faith? Verse 22, Jesus' response to Peter's comment there master look at that fig tree that you cursed it's withered away and what did Jesus say yep I got that one no he didn't he said have faith in God have faith in God I understand that in a little very literal sense that statement may have sounded like this. Have the faith of God. Have a strong faith, Jesus was saying. Have the strongest kind of faith. Have a faith that is so strong that you believe that God is able to accomplish even the most difficult things with infinite ease. Have that kind of faith. Have full confidence in God. Constantly depend on Him. You know, as we move into this new year, we need a greater faith in the presence of problems. Verse 23, we need a greater faith in the presence of problems. And there's going to be many problems. There's going to be many problems this year, but where is our faith? We need a greater faith as we face those problems. Verse 23 again. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Do you believe in a God that can move mountains? Do you? I mean, he created the mountains, right? He allows mountains, right? Do you believe in a God that can move them? And if so, what does it take? What does it take for our God to move those mountains in our lives? Most likely, when Jesus spoke this, the Jews understood Jesus to be referring to a mountain as something that's strong and immovable, Uh, perhaps a problem that was standing in the way. And Jesus said that a key to mountain moving is a greater faith. He said, and shall not doubt in his heart, 
but shall believe those things which he saith shall come to pass. No doubting, full believing, a key to mountain moving. He wasn't speaking about greater faith in faith itself. <laughs> he wasn't speaking about greater faith in your feelings. He wasn't speaking about greater faith in yourself. You know, this, this is not about more self-confidence. You know, we're Americans and we can do this. <laughs> now, now he, wasn't, he wasn't speaking about that kind of faith or confidence. Not at all. You see, true faith a faith that can move mountains of problems, a faith that can move mountains of difficulties, is a faith that is founded and grounded in God and His Word. That's where it's at. And so, you know, I ask you, what has God promised you? And think specifically of God's promises in difficult experiences. What has God promised you in those times? Do you believe it? Or do you say, well, I mean, I read it in the Bible, and I, I, my problems are just different than that. You know, I mean, I know He did it for them. I just wish he would understand. You know, what is your level of commitment? What is your level of faith in the promises of God? You see, God wants you to experience the performance of his promises. He really does. He wants that for each one of us. But it's only in fully believing that we will truly experience that. I mean, God's just not going to give us whatever we wish when we don't have faith when we don't really believe He's going to do it, God wants to see full faith. He wants to see us let go of the guardrails, as it were. He wants to see us throw ourselves fully into the deep water, as we read about in Ezekiel, and say, trust me. And when we are able to fully surrender, when we let go of all the other helps, God does amazing things. Amazing things. But it takes surrender. It takes full faith. And there is a performance to those promises. Right on the tail of verse 23, and closely connected to it is verse 24, of course. And I say, as we face this new year, we also need a greater faith in the power of prayer. We need a greater faith in the power of prayer. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye shall receive them, and ye shall have them. You see, a faith that moves mountains is fueled by passionate prayer. I say it's fueled by passionate prayer. You know, we, we say this from time to time. You've heard it. Prayer changes things. Maybe it's, maybe it's on your wall. Prayer changes things. Uh, we, would, we believe that, right? I mean, prayer changes things? Do you believe that? <laughs> you know, and although we may not see the exact outcome that we were hoping for, it is impossible, I say, to earnestly pray according to the will of God in the Spirit of God and not experience change. At the very least, you will be changed when you do that. Something is changed <laughs> through earnest prayer in the will of God. In Luke chapter 11, uh, we have the principle of persistence. We also find it in uh, Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, we have the story of that persistent widow that kept coming back, kept coming back. Well, in Luke chapter 11, we have that principle of ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. For he that asketh, receiveth. To him that seeketh, he findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Ask, seek, and knock. And there is an answer. God says, you come to me. You come to me in faith. 
You come to me with passion, with persistence, and I will hear you. I will answer you. I'm reminded of the story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where the nation of Judah was facing an impossible mountain in their life. It was a matter of life and death. And that mountain came in the form of three attacking nations. And in fact, when you looked at who these nations were, when you looked at how many they were, when you looked at how close they were, it was a no-brainer. Judah was toast. There was no way forward. They had a few days to live and it was all over. And so you can imagine the panic that that brought. And so we have, in the beginning of that story, a picture of fear. There was fear. Even Jehoshaphat, the king, feared. But his fear did not drive him into the closet, as it were. It did not, he didn't put his head in the sand. His fear drove him to God. And in that story, what started with fear ended with faith. But what was in the middle? It was prayer. It was prayer and fasting. That made all the difference. And so those people, in the face of that impossible mountain, they came to God, and they prayed, and they ended that prayer by saying, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's faith. That's faith. And you know the rest of the story, and if you don't read it this afternoon, but God then orchestrated an amazing thing where they marched a singing army into that army. And God absolutely did the rest. All of those enemies were wiped out without them ever lifting a sword. And they sang, praise the Lord, for His mercy endureth forever. Yeah, that was what did it. I say that's a picture of faith. A picture of faith. But not only does prayer fuel our faith, faith is also foundational to powerful prayer. It is, it is absolutely foundational to powerful prayer. You cannot have powerful prayer when there is not faith at the center of it. You have to believe in someone bigger than you. Okay? What did Judas say? We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you, okay? So, so they were praying in faith. Someone has put it this way, that praying without faith is like a man shooting a gun without a bullet. It makes a lot of noise, but there's no execution. <laughs> yeah, that's like faith. That's like prayer without faith. Verse 24 again, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them and ye shall have them. I quote, Men who have strong and living faith in God, who pray for things agreeable to His will, and which He has promised to grant in answer to prayer, may confidently expect in His time and way to receive them. Confidence that in God's timing, in God's way, there will be a performance of His promise. Now, there's a number of prerequisites listed in Scripture for powerful prayer. In other words, you can't just pray in any old way, in any old condition, for any old thing, and expect God to bow to your wishes, okay? <laughs> All right? There are requirements for powerful, effective prayer. God has requirements for coming to Him in prayer and for expecting those powerful results. And we don't have time to dig into all of that this morning. It would make a wonderful message for a later time. But certainly, faith in God is foundational. And along with that, an attitude of forgiveness for others. An attitude of forgiveness for others. So there is something very important. Two things when we come to God in prayer. One is our relationship with God. The other is our relationship with our brothers and sisters. And in fact, in Matthew, it doesn't just say brother or sister. It says, 
every man or something to that effect. There is two things that are extremely important that must be in tune in order for our prayers to be effective and powerful. I quote from Warren Wiersbe, We do not earn God's blessing by forgiving one another. Our forgiving spirit is one evidence that our hearts are right with God and that we want to obey His will. And this makes it possible for the Father to hear us and answer our prayer. That brings us here to the last point for the morning, and that is the call to heartfelt forgiveness. We find that in verses 25 and 26. You know, God is calling us this year to grow in understanding and practice of forgiveness. Heartfelt forgiveness is not simply an act, but it's an attitude. It's a way of life. And Jesus made it clear in these verses that our willingness to forgive others is directly related to how much we value our own redemption. You get that? Our willingness to forgive others is directly related to how much we value our own redemption. What does he say? When you stand praying, forgive if you have aught, if you hold anything against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And you have some. I have some. Verse 26, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Turn back to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And notice what Jesus has to say about this. I want to read this story here in the last part of the chapter. Starting at verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say unto thee, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. Or we could say millions of dollars. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, or just a few dollars. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. A call to heartfelt forgiveness. I say that true forgiveness is not simply an act, but it is an attitude. It is a way of life. I forgive. I forgive. It becomes a daily part of our life. When our memory lands on something from the past, something painful, something that we have a hard time getting over, I forgive. I choose to forgive. 
I forgive. It's an attitude, a lifestyle of forgiveness. And I ask you, you know, what has God done for you through His Son, Jesus Christ? The Scripture says that for as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. The Bible says that I will remember their sins no more. That is God's promise to His children. I will remember their sins no more. Listen, you had a life sentence over you that spelled eternal death. That's what you had. Your sin separated you from the very presence of the loving Heavenly Father. You had a debt hanging over you that you could never pay. But Jesus paid it all with His lifeblood. He paid it all. He bore our sins, the Scripture says, in His body on the cross. He took the pain and punishment in our place. What we deserved, He took that. And He forgave the whole debt. And He set us free. Does that mean anything to you this morning? Evidently, and sadly, it doesn't mean much to some professing Christians because they have an awful hard time forgiving. Whether it's a husband or a wife or a child or a dad or a mom or that employee, I say, what does the blood of Christ mean to you? You see, when you refuse to forgive, you are revealing that you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. You are requiring something of others that you believe you are far above when you refuse to forgive. It's been said that he who does not forgive burns the bridge over which he himself must cross. For to be forgiven, he must forgive. We could think of of different illustrations. One of my favorite stories, as far as forgiveness, is the story of Corrie ten Boom. The story that is told about her. And most of you understand her story. Her and her sister and family came through the, the Nazi concentration camps. And her and her sister were very mistreated, abused, along with many others. And there was one particular guard in that concentration camp that was especially brutal, that was especially demeaning, that was especially abusive to those two ladies. And many years later, after they had been freed, Corrie ten Boom was telling her story in a service. And when the service was done, she caught a glimpse of a man coming towards her. And immediately, her mind flashed back to those horrible memories. That was the guard. That was the guard. It was then that she had to make a decision. What? What is she going to do with that? He came up to her and he extended his hand and he said, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And inside of her, all she could think of was absolutely not. No, how could I forgive you? And yet in that moment, she cried out, Jesus, help me, help me. And she somewhat woodenly, mechanically, stuck out her hand. And as her hand embraced the hand of that guard, she felt the Spirit of God flowing through her body, from her heart into her hand, into the hand of that guard. And there was forgiveness, there was peace. Something that cannot be described unless it's experienced. Forgiveness. 
And there's something that I just want to read, one sentence that I want to read that someone has said, and that is, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you. Wow. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. We could think about Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We could think of Stephen as he was being stoned. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And we think we've been wronged. We think we've been wronged. Dear people, we have freely received from God the Heavenly Father. We have freely received. We are called in turn to freely give. And so as we move into this new year, we have a lot of things to work on in our lives. We have a lot of room for growth. God is calling us to greater areas of fruitfulness and faith and forgiveness. And it is through the grace of God, it is through His mercy, that we will be able to do that. No, it won't come naturally. But God will empower you, enable you to grow in those areas as you cry out to Him for strength. As you lay aside your hurts, your fears, your safety points, your guardrails as they, as they were. Lay those aside and plunge deeper with Him and God will enable you to do the impossible for His honor and for His glory and for the good of you and those around you. Let's pray. Lord, You have blessed us again with another, another wonderful opportunity, Father, to study Your Word together. You have so much for us. You want to share with us again this morning as we move forward into this new year. You want to share with us Your heart and Your desire, Your will for our lives. And Father, we know that when You do that, when we are confronted with the truth of the Gospel, that our nature is to stiff-arm that loving call. Our nature is to say that we will not have that man to reign over me. And yet, Father, we know that it is through the truth of the Gospel, it is through accepting that unspeakable gift that we experience unspeakable joy, that we experience freedom, that we find that we are the prisoner that is released. Father God, I pray that you would work in our hearts in a special way. Open our hearts to the truth of your word. May your Holy Spirit truly work in us, through us, not only as individuals, but as a congregation. And Father, I pray that you could prepare us as we move more and more into the last days. We believe that your coming is imminent. And we look forward to that. Help us to live in light of your return. And may this be a congregation that is on fire for you. A congregation that is not only leaves, but is full of fruit for the glory of God, that other souls may be drawn to your kingdom. Thank you, Father, for hearing us this morning. And give us strength, give us grace as we go from here. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.